0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Christian Faborg Ganderson. I'm a fourth year medical student at Emory University in Atlanta and a proud new member of the CardioNerds Intern Academy and House Jones. As a student, I've developed an interest in global health and preventative cardiology and have been actively involved in both fields, clinically and through my research. I'm a member of the ACC Medical Student Leadership Group and serve on the editorial committee for the student perspectives page. I dream of one day crafting a career that combines clinical cardiology, global health and medical education. This year, I'll be applying into internal medicine. In my free time, I enjoy relaxing with friends, playing volleyball, and fly fishing on the Chattahoochee River. Folks, thanks for joining us on this Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise. We'll make several key stops along this comprehensive curricular journey. See the link to our Cardio OB page in this episode's description. At the last stop, in episode 138, we learned all about lifelong advocacy for women's cardiovascular health with Drs. Sharon Hayes and Annette Wanger. In this episode, we discuss pregnancy and multidisciplinary critical care with Drs. Afshan Hamid, Mary Louise Meng, and Paul Forfia. This episode focuses on the multidisciplinary management of high-risk pregnancy in the critical care setting. Three experts from varied subspecialties, including cardiology, pulmonary hypertension, maternal fetal medicine, cardiac anesthesia, and obstetrical anesthesia guide listeners through a case of a patient with a complex congenital heart disease who becomes pregnant. What I loved about this episode was that it highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary, team-based approach to the delivery and management of high-risk patients with congenital heart disease. As a medical student who just wrapped up his clerkship year, this was an awesome opportunity to see many of the specialties I rotated with brought together with a patient as the focus. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Remember, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there's no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Stay tuned for a special message about cardioobstetrics and women' heart.
1: Hey, cardio nerds! It's Sonia, UT Southwestern fellow and co-chair for the Cardio Nerds Cardioobstetrics series. Today, we're excited to bring you a very special episode in our cardio OB series: pregnancy and interdisciplinary critical care. In this episode, Dr. Caitlin Abraham will guide us through a fascinating but complex obstetrics case from the perspective of cardiology, OB maternal-fetal medicine, and anesthesia. We will also discuss a multidisciplinary, team-based approach to cardio obstetrics from our featured experts today, Dr. Paul Forfia, Dr. Afshan Hamid, and Dr. Marie-Louise May.
2: While all of our episodes have been just such a blast to record, we've been particularly excited about this one because of the incredible all-star crew we have with us today to really hammer in how interdisciplinary the cardio obstetric heart team really should be. Let's meet our guests, starting with our featured fellow, Dr. Caitlin Eberly. Caitlin is a third-year Chief Cardiology Fellow at Temple University Hospital, who will be working as a non-invasive cardiologist with a focus on women's health next year. Caitlin is the architect behind this amazing discussion we're about to have today. Caitlin, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, everyone. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and to share our case with all of you. But first, I'd like to welcome our phenomenal experts today. First, we have Dr. Paul Forfia. He is a professor of medicine at Temple University Hospital and co-director of the pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, and CTEF program at Temple University Hospital. He is a renowned expert in the management of patients with right heart failure and PH and has grown the program at Temple to one of the largest in the country. Welcome, Dr. Forfia. Hey,
4: everybody. Thank you very much, Caitlin. And thank you, everyone, for having me on this episode of CardioNerds. I hope to uh, contribute to a fun session and an educational session for everybody listening. Dr.
2: Forfia, we're really excited to have you join us today. You know, pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure are so subspecialized within cardiology and some of our favorite topics. We definitely don't consider right heart, the uh, forgotten ventricle, and cardiotherapy. How did you decide to pursue this specific
4: area? So I always knew I was going into something related to the heart, whether it was cardiology or cardiac surgery. When I made the decision to go into medicine and cardiology as a fourth year medical student, for whatever reason, even as a junior trainee, I was particularly interested in the right heart and the interaction between the right heart and the lung circulation. So the first IRB I ever wrote was on the effects of an acute asthma exacerbation on RV size and function in the emergency department. And so that was, for whatever reason, my interest in pulmonary hypertension became the medium through which I could learn and study about the right heart. And that's really how it started.
3: Thanks, Dr. Porfia. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Afshan Hamid. She is a clinical professor of both cardiology and maternal fetal medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Hamid has served on multiple guideline committees on heart disease and pregnancy for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and serves on the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review Advisory Committee that reviews all cases of maternal mortality to identify gaps in care for quality improvement opportunities. She also serves on the writing committee for the Heart Rhythm Society's Arrhythmias and Pregnancy Guidelines and as an expert to help create an obstetrics basic life support curriculum to integrate into the American Heart Association
5: life support program. Welcome, Dr. Hamid. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I'm very excited to be part of this episode.
6: Dr. Hamid, we are so thrilled to have you join the podcast today for our pregnancy and interdisciplinary critical care episode. As Caitlin mentioned, you're dual boarded in maternal fetal medicine and cardiology. How in the world did that come to be?
5: You know, I have to tell you, it's not planned. I don't think I would have planned what I did. However, you know, this was back in late 90s when I was a cardiology fellow at USC, and we had a large population of pregnant cardiac patients, a lot of them from Mexico with rheumatic heart disease. So we literally had a phone clinic that none of the cardiology fellows wanted to go with Dr. Al-Khayam. So I literally was the only fellow at the time who would be excited to go over to women's hospital and take care of these women. So much so that once I was almost halfway through my cardiology fellowship, I felt that You know, I I need to really know obstetrics. I want to take care of the whole patient and not just the cardiology part. That's how I decided to go into OB. And interestingly, I did my cardiology boards when I was a second year OB resident. (laughs) That was exciting. But, you know, I think the actual reality dawned on me when I was done with the OB residency. And I was asked to do MFM fellowship. I said, MFM? Am I crazy? Am I going to do another three years of fellowship? Anyway, so I did MFM. I'm a cardiologist. I'm very excited to be doing what I'm doing. Very fortunate to be taking care of these patients. So a long haul, but very exciting. Enjoyed every step of the way.
2: Dr. Hamid, your track is amazing. And I just want to say we had the pleasure of learning from Dr. Al-Khayyam as part of this series about velvular heart disease in pregnancy. And I totally understand how his passion for the field could be so infectious. And he did mention how much he enjoyed working with you in the past.
5: Absolutely. We have had several publications. You know, my cell phone was with all the OB residents at the time. I remember back when we were doing a lot of right heart catheterizations, swan so gas of pretty much all valve disease. And I was the one who would go there, put in. The catheters and manage them. And like I said, none of the other cardiology fellows was even remotely interested in doing it. I'm so happy to see the interest and the cardioobstetrics and the way this whole field is evolving. It's amazing. That is such a cool story, Dr. Hamid, and we are so
3: excited to have you. And last but not least, we would also like to welcome Dr. Marie-Louise Meng. Dr. Meng is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Duke University Who has completed additional fellowships in both obstetrical anesthesia and cardiothoracic anesthesia? She is also a physician scientist researching the role of echocardiography and biomarkers in identifying women at risk of cardiovascular complications after pregnancies complicated by preeclampsia. Welcome, Dr. Meng. Thank you so much for
7: inviting me. I'm really excited to be part of this episode and to bring the anesthesiology perspective into the cardiology and obstetric conversation.
1: So Dr. Meng, what made you decide to pursue training in both obstetric anesthesia and cardiothoracic anesthesia?
7: So it's like one of those things where when you fall in love with something, you just have to do it. And what I fell in love with first was obstetric anesthesia. At the end of my first year of residency, a little bit bored of just the general anesthesia for healthy patients, I realized that The labor floor was a magical place where patients weren't patients. They were having a wonderful, exciting life event. It was the happiest place in the hospital. And there is nothing more gratifying than giving a woman who is in pain a labor epidural. So I fell in love with what we were doing because we were helping women, but also because we were partnering with the obstetricians to keep these women safe through labor and delivery, dealing with hemorrhages, and of course, all of the complicated patients that you see at big medical centers. I realized that just doing obstetric anesthesia fellowship wouldn't be enough, and that if I did a second fellowship in cardiac anesthesia, I'd be able to bring an extra layer of safety to the care I provide for the women. Plus, also, the cardiac operating room is a pretty fun place to work. I love working with those surgeons and the obstetricians, and the combination's been a lot of fun.
3: Thanks so much, Dr. Meng. So, As we all know, today's episode focuses on interdisciplinary cardiac critical care management of the peripartum patient. Since together, the three of you have multiple advanced subspecialties under your belts, we would love to review a complex patient case with you today. This patient is actually well-known to Dr. Forfia, and he managed her throughout her pregnancy and delivery, and can help to provide some insight on her care. Our patient is a 34-year-old woman with a history of a congenital conotruncal ventricular septal defect, Eisenmenger's and pulmonary hypertension, who came into our pulmonary hypertension clinic with a desire for pregnancy. As an aside, CardioNerds will definitely want to check out episode 124 about pregnancy and pH with Dr. Candace Silversides as well. So back to our patient. She was born in India and had a normal childhood. In high school, she began to notice limitation with vigorous exercise, and a family member noticed that she was cyanotic and had digital clubbing. She was evaluated in India and found to have a large conotruncal ventricular septal defect with Eisenmenger physiology, which is when a chronic left-to-right cardiac shunt causes pH and eventual reversal of the shunt into a cyanotic right-to-left shunt. More on this later. Repair was deferred at the time given Eisenmenger physiology, and she was started on sildenafil and therapeutic anticoagulation with Coumadin. She later moved to the United States and established care in a pulmonary hypertension center of excellence, And she has been managed for several years on ambrosentan, warfarin, and sildenafil. And she has been clinically stable and currently says she feels at her baseline. So, Dr. Forfia, what were your thoughts on our patient's desire for pregnancy when she came to see you? And how would you risk stratify her and counsel her at this point?
4: Well, there's a little bit of an additional backstory in that The very first time I met her in clinic, which was probably a year and a half before we started to manage her, you know, as per this discussion, when she first showed up in clinic, her very first visit, she was four weeks pregnant. And so when we first met her, she was on 20 milligrams, three times daily of sildenafil. I had just seen an echocardiogram on her, no red heart cast. And she said, literally at the end of the visit, by the way, I'm pregnant. And she was on warfarin at the time. And so she became pregnant on warfarin. And the total sum of everything between the risk of warfarin embryopathy and uncharacterized pulmonary hypertensive syndrome and Eisenmiger type physiology, we recommended termination at that time. And she did. Within six months to a year after that, she came back to clinic and said, I- I'm going to get pregnant at some point. And I would like you to manage me through pregnancy. And so she was not asking. She was telling. And she said that her and her husband had discussed this at length and that she would risk her life to become pregnant and to have a child for her and her family. And so we knew it was coming. So with that in mind, when she initially, after the termination, came back and said, I will become pregnant we obviously started discussing with her how that would have to go. And one of the first things that we talked about was that if and when she was to try to conceive, she would have to come off the endothelium receptor antagonist, in which case we would need to bolster her background PAH medical therapy while she came off the ERA. So the ERA would have to stop. The sildenafil dose actually tripled and we ended up adding an inhaled prostacyclin and l or Tyvaso to her background regimen. The remainder of the answer may surprise you in that you know, she's an interesting case because she's actually Eisenmenger syndrome, although not the full-blown Eisenmenger syndrome that you'll see in someone with a wide open AB canal or walking around with SATs in the high 70s, low 80s, with a hemoglobin in the low 20s. When I initially cast her, her QPQS was 1.4, her PVR was around 17 Woods units. And so she had Eisenmeiger complex or Eisenmenger syndrome, but at that Kind of borderline level between PAH and Eisenmeigers. And because she actually had a right heart that looked more typical and characteristic of an Eisenmeiger heart than a typical PAH heart, I was actually fairly confident that I was going to be able to manage it from a hemodynamic perspective and also from an oxygen saturation perspective. Another thing that we told her, of course, at the time was that she would have to listen to us. And if she was to take on this risk, she would have to adhere to medical therapies, follow with us, follow with maternal fetal medicine here at Temple, and basically follow up exactly along the plan that we lay out, which historically has worked very, very well for us in all forms of pulmonary hypertension and pregnancy. And she was highly adherent and compliant. And as you'll find out through the podcast, things actually went quite well.
3: So Dr. Hamid, in her case, what are the risks to the
5: fetus of pregnancy and how would you counsel her? This is a very interesting case. And as obstetricians, the term pulmonary hypertension is one of the scariest terms that we can have amongst cardiac patients. So undoubtedly, this is, again, a very high risk group of patients that we are looking at. In terms of congenital heart disease, the first thing that comes to mind with regards to the fetus is the risk to the fetus the risk of the fetus of having the genital cardiac defect. So other than that, in a setting of hypoxemia with low oxygen saturations and cyanosis, as you know, the oxygen in the mother is what is going to the baby that is compartmentalized in the mother. So if the mother's oxygen is low, we know that the fetal oxygen delivery is low. However, as we know that the fetal hemoglobin is very different than adult hemoglobin, so it hangs on to oxygen much more effectively in a setting of low oxygen saturations. To a certain degree, hypoxemia in the mother is well-tolerated. However, when it gets to the point where in this patient, in a patient who is cytotic, there is risk of low oxygen tension in the baby. And of course, that would affect the growth. A very common complication that we see in fetuses is fetal growth restriction and also preterm delivery. I yet have to see a cyanotic patient deliver beyond their due date or at their due date. Usually they get delivered mainly for maternal indications, but also a large number of them due to fetal indications relating to the fetal growth. So as you touched on, not only is the patient herself
3: a high-risk patient, but her cyanotic congenital heart disease also puts her fetus at risk. And this was relayed to her in clinic as she presented desiring pregnancy. And so as Dr. Forfia alluded to, in terms of her objective data when she came to clinic, her vitals in the clinic before she became pregnant were a heart rate of 94 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 119 over 75, with an oxygen saturation hovering between 89 to 90 percent on room air. Her prior right heart catheterization was remarkable for a pulmonary artery pressure of 100 over 40 with a mean of 65, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 7, and a pulmonary vascular resistance of 17 wood units, defining her hemodynamics as isolated precapillary pulmonary hypertension. Her thick cardiac index was calculated at 1.69 liters per minute per meter squared, and her echocardiogram revealed a normal left ventricular ejection fraction of 55 to 60 percent mild to moderately enlarged right ventricle with mild to moderately reduced function, and a large congenital defect in the perimembranous ventricular septum with a moderate bidirectional shunt.
2: Caitlin, wow, those are some impressive, and in this context, some scary numbers, uh, especially taking into account what we learned from Dr. Candice Silversides. We will have a separate episode on congenital heart defects in pregnancy as part of our congenital heart disease series with Dr. Carol Warrens, but As cardiators know, not all congenital heart defects are created equal. So going to our patient, Dr. Forfia, after hearing all this data, what are some of the things that you would be worried about or actually that you were worried about during pregnancy from
4: the pH perspective for this patient? Well, you're always thinking about, in this particular case, two issues that may seem separated on the surface, but in fact, are inexorably linked. The first is the relationship between the pulmonary vascular resistance and right heart function, or what we call RBPA coupling. And so we're always trying to medically get the pulmonary vascular resistance down to a point where the right heart can adapt to that load and function either at a normal or near normal level. And for what it's worth, the RV size and function actually work better than what they were reported to be. What Caitlin is reading is exactly what was reported on the ECHO reports, but her RV size was at most mildly dilated and at most mild dysfunction, maybe even low normal function and had a fairly typically relatively adapted right heart to load. And so what you're always considering first is that RVPA coupling relationship. And that of course is what's going to be your best indicator of maternal cardiovascular reserve going through pregnancy, labor, and in the postpartum period. And then the second part is what her relative degree of desaturation will be over time. Now, what is, shall we say, convenient about managing congenital heart disease-associated PAH with an open shunt? This is the key, is that when the shunt is still open, as it was in her case, the oxygen saturation is actually a fairly good metric of what your PVR is and what your QPQS is. And so, the more effective you are at keeping the PVR down and keeping your QPQS over one, the more you will be relatively saturated. So when we follow patients with Eisenmeiger's pH with an open shunt, when you titrate pH medical therapies, typically their oxygen saturations will rise. If their pH medicines are wearing off or becoming ineffective, you'll see their SATs dip as their PVR rises and as their QPQS starts to approach one and below one. And so in this patient, it's really all about keeping that right heart as close to normal as possible by echocardiography, keeping that jugular venous pressure nice and low, and then in turn, using the arterial oxygen saturation on a peripheral pulse oximeter as a relative non-invasive index of what your moment-to-moment relationship is between PPR and SVR and what direction that shunt is going in. And everything that we saw from the beginning and through pregnancy was relatively in line with what we would have wanted as we progressed through pregnancy. Of course, we watched her like a hawk and we adjusted her medications as we went along, but those are the things that
6: we were watching. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Forfia. These two points are just phenomenal pearls. One is that the RVPA coupling, which is such a important factor in treatment of patients like this, and also getting an appreciation that your personal assessment of the RV can really drive the way you approach the patient. For all our listeners, the RV images will be available on our website for you to pick up the same gestalt as Dr. Forfia. The other thing that you mentioned is that oxygen saturation being a great metric of PVR in the setting of an open shunt and to gauge how well we're doing with medications. These are just really great, great pearls. Now, Dr. Hamid, the drive to have children could be very strong. But for our patient, Dr. Forfia outlined a lot of cautionary red flags and with perhaps some reassuring signals, but in general, what is your personal approach to preconception counseling to help the patient weigh the pros and cons of pursuing pregnancy?
5: I think that is a very important question that we come across more so in my MFM practice. You know, patients come in and they want to know, and this, this may be the second or the third opinion consultation. And what I've seen is when patients get to these super high risk where there's no doubt everyone that she's going to see is going to say, do not get pregnant. That is what the overwhelming majority is going to recommend. Even in a setting where you have the means to take care of these patients because you really don't know how they're going to do, they may do well during pregnancy. But all of these hemodynamics, they can be totally different or detrimental. See if she has a postpartum hemorrhage and now she's hypotensive and now she's shunting across. So I typically sit down with the patient and I frankly go over the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. And I have to tell you, in my many, many years of experience, for patients who really have a strong desire, and they look at my eyes and say, Dr. Hamid, I know I'm prepared to be in the worst case scenario and I'm going to go with it. They do very well. I don't know whether it's their will or their compliance or their drive. They, they do very well. And I have to tell you, there are some patients when they hear the worst, the doom and gloom, they're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to go through that. And I highly encourage that sheer decision making. When you're one-to-one with the patient, sit down and whatever their wishes are, I go with that. And like I said, in this particular patient, if she had come to my office asking, I would have, this is the best case scenario that she ended up having, but it could have been worse. And again, it's up to the patient, up to the family, how driven they are. Sometimes if they had a prior child, they're going to say, you know, I just do not want this pregnancy. I'm just going to stay with how I am. And some of them, they want to pursue. That is generally what I do in my practice. And Dr. Hamid, I think the importance of shared clinical
3: decision-making can't be understated in her case. And as Dr. Forfia mentioned, as we are progressing through her care, ERAs are contraindicated in pregnancy. And because of this, her ambercentam was discontinued. She was started on inhaled triprostanil. Her sildenafil dose was significantly increased, and her anticoagulation was switched to therapeutic enoxaparin. And this was after a shared decision-making discussion between Dr. Forfia and the patient, where she continued to express a strong desire to become pregnant. And then a short while later, she presented to clinic four weeks pregnant.
2: All right. So here we are. And you know, Caitlin, in having had multiple cardio obstetric recordings so far, there are three Ps that keep coming up. One is planning the follow-up, and two is preparing with contingencies, and three is personalizing the approach to the specific patient. So Dr. Hamid, with regards to planning the follow-up for this particular patient, what are the, the additional tests and labs that you would get? And how would you monitor her over the course of her pregnancy?
5: Yeah, I think one of the important things that I emphasize is there's no way for me to know how you're feeling unless you tell me. So this is the type of patient where you have a very close-loop communication. You outline the potential symptoms that the patient may have and to call if there's any change in her status. Things that I'd be concerned about are going to be the right heart failure, the volume overload of pregnancy, the propensity to arrhythmias, and getting into this spiral of low oxygen saturations with high PA pressures and going that route. In general, I would follow these patients every couple of weeks, if not every week in the second half of pregnancy. I usually use B and P levels all throughout. It gives me a sense of how their volume or the pressure status is in the ventricles. And then, like I said, patient education and follow-up. Serial examinations, if they need, if they need change of medications or diuretics, depending on how they're doing. In terms of the fetus, like I mentioned earlier, there is risk for congenital heart disease in the fetus. So we definitely want a fetal echocardiogram. These patients benefit by genetic counseling and then follow up every three to four weeks to look at the baby's growth. We usually put them in testing, particularly if oxygen levels are lower because of the risk of fetal growth restriction. I typically would advocate 28 to 30 weeks. I would put them in testing. And then we're going to talk about the multidisciplinary planning a little bit later. But again, I think the bottom line is a very close communication between the provider and the patient and making sure that the patient has access to care and they can come in anytime, they can call in anytime if there is a change in their status. Awesome. So Dr.
1: Porfia, could you update us on what the cardiac plan was for this patient?
4: Sure. So of course, first and foremost was to get a baseline level of PAH medical therapy of an intensity that matched her disease. And like I said, she had maybe mild RV dysfunction at baseline. We wanted it to be either that or normal through pregnancy. And we were able to achieve that. And as was pointed out, we're also a big follower of the B-type natriuretic peptide level at baseline and through all phases of pregnancy. So she started out with a BNP level of around 40 and outside of on the day of delivery, which she had accelerated hypertension, which we'll get into, it was only at that point that she bumped her BNP level. So we do get the meds where we want them to be. We follow the patients quite regularly, even within the first two trimesters. I'm seeing them every four weeks. After the first trimester, I'm seeing them about every four weeks. Once they hit the beginning of their third trimester, I'm seeing them weekly and constantly looking at their jugular venous pressure, checking their BNP. We repeat their echocardiogram at certain points during the pregnancy. That's, of course, timing to relative blood volume and cardiac output changes that are predicted based on the gestational age. And then, of course, we also set up our typical multidisciplinary meeting with maternal fetal medicine, obstetric anesthesia, and ART group to set our plan, our contingency plans. Well, it's something we've been doing for many years, which we find to be invaluable. So it's really about getting the right meds adjusted, regular PH medical follow-up, serial biomarker assessment of the BNP, regular echo checks and JVP checks, (laughs) and getting that MFM, OB anesthesia, and pulmonary hypertension collaborative team together so that we have our plan in place for how things are going to go on the day of delivery.
1: Great. So that's actually a perfect transition for our next question for Dr. Meng. So Dr. Meng, from your perspective... When is the right time to have complex cardiac patients who are pregnant evaluated by anesthesia?
7: So we're always happy to see these patients anytime in pregnancy, especially if the mom is asking to speak with an anesthesiologist. There are a few things that are useful in those planning visits with us. Number one, anesthesia is famous for the airway. We need to make sure that she is an easy airway or if there are going to be airway concerns that we incorporate that into our plan. I'm going to do six A's. Airway was the first. Access. Some women have difficulty with access. So whether or not we need to place a pick in her or long-term access ahead of time or whether or not it won't be an issue is useful to know. A lot of these women are going to be anxious about the process and the anesthesiologist is one of the people at bedside that is taking care of the anxiety or helping recognize that, you know, this is anxiety. This isn't heart failure, shortness of breath. So many times in a cesarean delivery, when the uterus is exteriorized, which it shouldn't be in patients with pulmonary hypertension, but when it is, or just with the neuraxial anesthesia, women will have symptoms of shortness of breast, chest pressure, chest pain, and having a close relationship with her to be able to determine based on what she's reporting and her vital signs, whether this is the heart or this is anxiety is super important. So I love having that visit when she's pregnant and she's not delivering to be able to establish a relationship so that we can manage and understand her anxiety and her symptoms well. We need to know what her anticoagulation is so that we'll be able to do neuraxial anesthesia if possible. So perhaps switching her from a longer acting agent to a shorter acting agent around the time of delivery, anesthesia can assist with that. And then who needs to be available from anesthesia? Can your obstetric anesthesiologist take care of her or do we need to partner with a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist? Do we need to speak with the CT surgeons and perfusion to make sure that there's VV or VA ECMO available? And then what's the arena where she should deliver? Can she have her vaginal delivery on the labor floor? Does she need a cesarean delivery in a cardiac operating room? And then where will she recover? Can the anesthesia team watch her closely and recover her on the labor floor? Or does she need to go to a CCU or any other ICU? So we love having the opportunity to meet the patient so that when we're in the planning meetings, we have a better sense of what she's going to
3: need. Dr. Meng, these pearls are fantastic. I love the six A's, as you mentioned, assessing the airway, access, anxiety, anticoagulation, availability, and the arena. And as you mentioned, in these patients who are clinically complex and high risk, the importance of a multidisciplinary team cannot be understated. And as Dr. Forfia mentioned, our patient was followed by cardiologists with expertise in pulmonary hypertension, maternal fetal medicine physicians, and anesthesiologists throughout her pregnancy. And so now fast forward a little bit, our patient is nearing the end of her second trimester and beginning her third trimester. Dr. Forfia and Dr. Meng what things do you think about when making a delivery plan for a patient like this? And Dr. Forfial, I'll start with you.
4: So the management plan around the time of delivery starts from the moment that we meet the patient in the office, you know, 35 or 40 weeks prior to that. And so all too often, what happens when people are non-expert in managing pregnant women with pulmonary hypertension or other complex cardiac issues is that they think that what they need to have is a whole series of resources available on the day of delivery. They need certain people in the operating room, and certain specialists and machines and technology. But what they forget is that the delivery plan starts many, many weeks prior. And so the fundamental aspect of a successful delivery plan of a pregnant woman with pulmonary hypertension is to optimize their pulmonary hypertension throughout the entire pregnancy. The goal is to widen the cardiopulmonary reserve as wide as you can get it so that when there are physiologic perturbations that are inevitably to occur during labor delivery and postpartum, potentially blood loss, that they have the cardiopulmonary reserve to tolerate those types of insults. That is by far the most important aspect to delivery plan, optimizing the patient well ahead of the day of delivery.
3: Dr. Meng, what are things that you think about in terms of anesthesia planning and hemodynamic monitoring for her? So first, I just want to echo
7: what Dr. Forfias just said. It is so important when women are plugged into the fantastic cardiovascular care that you guys provide. Anesthesiologists can tell the difference when we meet the patient that if they don't have the reserve. Unfortunately, all too often, the cardiac disease is not discovered until too late and they're just showing up at delivery and anesthesia is trying to figure everything out. That's why Dr. Silverside has included pregnancy cardiovascular care as a risk factor. So someone who should have received care who doesn't receive care, that increases her risk in pregnancy. So just echoing what Dr. Forfia said there. And also entering the conversation with cardiology between anesthesia early. So as he presented the patient, he was able to tell us, you know what? Her echo looked a lot better than what was in the report. Not all of your anesthesiologists are going to have access to the system to actually review the echo images themselves. So it's so helpful to have that conversation with the cardiologist to really let us know what her functional status is, how optimized you think her function really is, so that we know what we're meeting at the time of delivery. She had a well adapted RV, so that definitely helped this patient, but I wouldn't have known that just reading her images or just reading the reports. So what do we think about for hemodynamics from an anesthetic perspective is we know she's going to need analgesia. If she's going to have a vaginal delivery, she's going to have pain with contractions, which is going to increase her catecholamines. And in this patient, it can increase her PBR. So she definitely will need neuraxial anesthesia. And we preferred for her to have the neuraxial anesthesia before she starts having any pain any contractions or any cervical dilation. So, we do early epidurals or early combined spinal epidurals in these patients. And in order to do that, we need to have the appropriate access and, of course, the appropriate monitoring. A patient like this, arterial line is a must. Dr. Forfia also mentioned that the pulse oximeter is a great indicator for the shunt fraction. So, while we can be doing ABGs, you can also just be looking at the pulse oximeter to know where your shunt fraction is at that time. We need to be very careful to prevent air emboli in these patients. So we will have filters in our lines. And if these patients go for cesarean delivery, we'll ask the obstetricians not to exteriorize the uterus because there's always microemboli when the uterus is exteriorized above the level of the heart in that setting. Some of these women, if you I've taken care of a few where the cardiology team has placed a PA catheter in the cath lab for other reasons. For example, if the woman is transferred for care immediately and then immediately goes for delivery, if they're measuring pressures in the cath lab, they might leave the PA catheter in for us. Plus minus on placing one in a patient with Eisenmangers fresh just for delivery. And transthoracic echocardiogram is very useful. If the anesthesia team isn't comfortable doing it that might be a time when the cardiologist can come bedside and provide some images to help us understand what's going on with the right heart and the shunt fraction and help us titrate our inotropic agents.
6: Wow, Dr. Meng, two things. First of all, thank you so much for that comprehensive evaluation and assessment of of how you kind of view the planning phase of taking care of this patient. There are so many things that we would never have even thought of just Thinking about micro air emboli with uterus exteriorized, particularly in patients with shunts, is just unbelievable and definitely gives us an appreciation of why we need the multi D team. And secondly, I'm loving these six A's. It's like perfect. I think I'm going to definitely incorporate for my pre procedural evaluations for cardiac catheterization and structural interventions. It works perfectly airway, axis, anxiety, anticoagulation. I'll probably say anti platelet. So I'll work on the other ones to adapt, but I think I'll definitely incorporate that to the way that I practice and teach the procedures, there are a lot of things to consider with our patient, making it important to create an easily accessible delivery plan as a multi-D team and highlight it prominently in the chart. At your institutions, how do you make this multi-D plan accessible by all members of the care team? Dr. Amit, let's start with you.
5: Yeah, I think this is actually the most important piece that connects all the specialists together taking care of the patient. So until we had, and I'm I'm going to start out with places that don't have a robust EMR because in those circumstances, 10, 12 years ago, we used to have a a written note with the plan, not only a a planned C-section or a planned delivery timing, but also if this patient comes in in the middle of the night, what are the steps? Who are we going to call? They were future numbers, cell phone numbers, point Person for anesthesia, point person for cardiology, for OB, and so on. And it would be in the residence conference room, right on labor and delivery. That was where you would go and find out what the plan is. But fortunately, now that we are all on EMR, and a lot of these EMRs, they, they talk to each other across various hospitals. What we have is we always create a multidisciplinary note labeled as such. And in there, we have exactly the same information about what to expect, what are we going to do, taking into account, literally down to, it's an emergency, what are the steps, one, two, three, who are you going to call, how are you going to manage this patient? And then it basically is shared with everyone. And we have a contact number for all providers to, again, keep that communication going and it's not surprising that these patients don't necessarily come at 37 or 39 weeks for a planned delivery, but they may show up. Sometimes when we have had patients show up at another institution because they called 911 and then they're told that they have to deliver a UCI and that we are either sending a helicopter depending on the distance or ambulance to bring them over. So I think the key is when we are prepared, things are less likely to go south. If we are not prepared is when we get into trouble. So the key is to plan to identify the team members.
6: Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Hamid. So I see that that is how it's done in California. But what about North Carolina, Dr. Meng?
3: So
7: I was actually talking with a colleague yesterday about this. In her other institution, they had something wonderful embedded within Epic that was like a sticky note that anybody could use from any service. So they had the whole plan basically in that sticky note in her electronic chart. That's really the best way to do it. And it's on my to-do list to find out if we can get that in our epic here. As of right now, it's really just emails about specific patients where the plan will be in the email from each service. Usually there's an MFM fellow that coordinates consolidating it all really nicely. And then we have our Wednesday meetings where we talk about the complicated MFM patients that require multidisciplinary care. So I think we're a bit antiquated with email threads. It's a secure system, so that's why we like it. But having the note within the chart that can be updated by everybody, I think is probably the best way to do it.
6: And I could definitely appreciate that. A lot of times we had been previously working with email threads, and particularly when the house staff is not on the email thread, it could be quite confusing. So I could see how something that's chart-based could be very helpful. Our nurses really utilize that tool and seem to have a great way of communicating seamlessly across floor units and different phases of care. Dr. Forfia, how is it done in the great state of Pennsylvania? So
4: we're a little more old school. We certainly are familiar with the sticky note concept. But one of the most important things that we do is we stick with the same team of people. Our pulmonary hypertension medical team is a small group of experts our maternal fetal medicine attendings, or a small group of experts. And then we have a small core of obstetric anesthesia that we stick with. And when you stick with a core team of people who are specialized in this area and are comfortable, you end up with a better result. A, a word that I, I love, it's part of my training at Johns Hopkins is equanimitas, equanimity. And we expect everyone who's on that core team, pH, anesthesia, obstetrics, MFM, to have that characteristic of being to have that equanimity and that calmness. One of the most dangerous characteristics to have in these types of cases is that person who has the panic personality. Those panickers are not on the team. Panic is more dangerous sometimes than the pulmonary hypertension. And so we really want the right people in the room. We do have our multidisciplinary meeting. And as was laid out, we do have minutes from the meeting that are summarized and circulated by email to everyone on the team. And we do have a huddle as we get closer to the time of delivery, which is usually planned. In this case, it wasn't quite planned, but nevertheless, we do have a meeting and then we have our huddle and our debriefing as as the time draws closer. I, I also would like to echo what was said before about the arena. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, are all of your patients delivered in the cardiac operating room? And I say, no, none of them deliver in the cardiac operating room. What we much, much prefer is that Each individual member of the team are working in the area that they work in the best. That's why we like MFM involved. That's why we like their deliveries to happen in the obstetric floor or in the obstetric operating room if it's a C-section. And we prefer obstetrics anesthesia because each of these environments, these team members, all the equipment, the nurses, the staffing, the equipment is appropriate for what is actually happening, which is the delivery of a child. When you go outside of that arena, you're moving equipment to different places, staffing to different places. And I have found that to be counterintuitive, but those who are most experienced doing it will totally understand what I'm saying.
3: Well, with the three of you, Dr. Forfia, Dr. Hamid, and Dr. Mang, there are certainly no panickers on this episode. To summarize the plan for our patient, the plan was for induction of labor at 37 weeks with an expedited vaginal delivery with vacuum or forceps to shorten the second stage of labor. For pain control, the plan was for neuraxial anesthesia, and she would receive antibiotic prophylaxis for endocarditis at the time of delivery, given her unrepaired congenital defect. And as Dr. Meng had alluded to, all of her IVs would have filters given the risk of paradoxical air embolism from her right to left shunt. But of course, when patients are this complex, there often is no smooth sailing into delivery. At 33 weeks gestation, she presented to her maternal fetal medicine appointment and was found to have a drop in her oxygen saturation to 87% and a non-reactive, non-stress test with intermittent decelerations. Her fetal ultrasound showed intrauterine growth restriction, and she was admitted for diuresis and a contraction stress test. So, Dr. Hamid, for all of the cardiologists listening to this podcast, can you please
5: briefly translate the fetal findings into layman's terms for us? Absolutely. And I must say that sometimes the fetal heart rate could be the fourth or the fifth vital sign for the mother. As you know, oxygen goes from the mother to the fetus and the fetus sustains the aerobic metabolism. And there are certain patterns in the fetal heart rate. One of them is acceleration. So with the movement, baby's heart rate goes up. If there's enough oxygen in the fetus, you'll see accelerations. If you don't see accelerations, that could mean that there's not enough oxygen. Once the pathway, say the low oxygen concentration staying in the baby, eventually the metabolism is going to be anaerobic, resulting in acidosis. There'll be hypoxemia, acidosis at the tissue level, and if it continues, it may develop acidemia, where the fetal pH may get lower. And if there's fetal, Acidemia that may lead to asphyxia and multi-organ failure, particularly neurologic injury in the baby. So there's this cascade of events that we don't want to get there. If we feel that the baby is not getting enough oxygen, we try certain measures to make it better. So we were looking at the fetal heart rate tracing. The non-reactive strip means that it could be because of the low oxygen in the baby. And then the intermittent decelerations could be that there is not enough blood flow that is going to the baby. It could be the central insufficiency. So in those scenarios, we want the baby to be monitored continuously. And we look at other parameters to reassure ourselves that baby is doing well. Otherwise, we move towards delivery. Dr. Hamid, I love
3: the point about fetal heart rate being the fifth vital sign for the mom. And when our patient was admitted to the hospital, she was ultimately given beta for fetal lung maturity. Unfortunately, she developed preeclampsia and severe thrombocytopenia. So instead of her initial delivery plan of induction, she ultimately underwent an urgent C-section at 33 weeks as a result of this obstetrical indication. Dr. Meng, what are the risks of anesthesia and C-section for our patient? You alluded to some of them with exteriorizing the uterus and microemboli. With her underlying pulmonary hypertension, what's on your mind? So I'm going to take a moment and say that this is no surprise that this is what happened
7: to her. If we're talking about a patient who's chronically hypoxemic from her Eisenmenger syndrome, no wonder that a hypoxic stress developed. And so the placenta secreted the preeclampsia-inducible factors, and she ends up with preeclampsia. And we know that thrombocytopenia or preeclampsia from severe features is something that is seen more commonly in patients with pulmonary hypertension. So we've seen many women in this situation at this point, and it's important to catch her and deliver her of the fetus before more severe features develop and before those platelets are too low such that we can't do neuraxial anesthesia because we really do prefer it. So I'll start there and just talk about neuraxial anesthesia versus general anesthesia, and then we'll talk a little bit about the risks of the C-section. So why do we prefer norexial? One, she's awake. Two, there's less of a hemodynamic swing or we can control the hemodynamic swing a little bit more. Now, cardiac anesthesiologists are putting patients to sleep and doing general endotracheal anesthesia for lung transplants all the time. So it's not that we can't do general anesthesia, but that those patients are not about to have the hemodynamic stress of delivery and huge volume load coming up to the heart. So the increase in intrathoracic pressure with induction and intubation can really cause right heart failure in these patients. So we prefer to do neuraxial. And neuraxial anesthesia, as Dr. Forfia has alluded, obstetric anesthesiologists, we know how to do it without large swings. We know how to titrate our vasopressors as we titrate our neuraxial anesthesia to the appropriate level. So with an arterial line and with careful, slow dosing, we can keep her vital signs as perfectly train-tracked as possible. So that's why we prefer to do neuraxial instead of general anesthesia. It's also just nice for her to be awake for the delivery of her child. What am I expecting with a C-section? Well, I'm going to control my anesthesia very nicely till the time of delivery. When the baby is born and the placenta is removed, that uterus needs to contract and it contracts down really firmly, and there is a huge fluid load that comes all the way up to the right heart because additionally, that uterus is kind of jumping off the IVC. It was compressing it for a little bit. So in a vaginal delivery, you're going to have 300 to 500 cc's of fluid coming up to the right heart with every contraction, and that's part of the reason why this woman did well is you were able to watch her and see that her heart and her lungs were handling the volume load with every small contraction very well, But in a cesarean delivery, that right heart has had no time to become accustomed to the fluid load you're walking in the or doing your anesthesia taking the baby out and then a huge one liter of fluid right up to that right heart so i've heard story after story of she was doing great and then the baby was born and then she decompensated it should be no surprise to any of us if she decompensates within the first half hour of delivery or literally within the first couple minutes so what are the things we need to do we know the fluid load is coming So we know her cardiac output should already be increased and it needs to be increased even further to handle that immediate post-delivery preload. So if she can't augment her cardiac output, then you better have started an inotrope to help with that as the anesthesiologist. And certainly your pulmonary vasodilators, they're on board and you don't stop them. So I'll start inhaled nitric oxide or epoprostenol if it's not already started to make that extra room in the pulmonary vasculature for all that fluid that's going to come up and by principle increase her pressure because we're increasing flow. In a patient like this with a shunt, I don't know what she's going to do with that fluid. It's quite possible that it will all shunt right to left and she'll become very hypoxemic And her coronary perfusion will be hypoxic. I don't need to tell the cardiologist about this. And what will then happen is her left and right heart will fail or she will lose consciousness if she's that hypoxemic. So that would be a patient where if her RV is still fine, you could just do VV ECMO and oxygenate the blood across that shunt. So that's an option for her. Bleeding is definitely going to happen. Every cesarean, there's about a 500 to a liter CC blood loss that you can expect. So if they're already anemic, you might want to just go straight ahead to a red blood cell transfusion instead of loading her with crystalloid. And then we need to do everything we can to contract that uterus. We are limited in patients with pulmonary hypertension in what uterotonics we can use. Methogen can increase SVR, so we don't give methargen to women with preeclampsia and certainly not to women with pulmonary hypertension. Carboprost or hemabate can cause bronchospasm. We avoid it in patients with asthma, and I definitely avoid it in patients with pulmonary hypertension because there is no forgiving a little bit of bronchospasm in these patients if it occurs. So the main uterotonic that we have is oxytocin. So I start oxytocin at a higher dose than normal to really get that uterus to contract. The common side effect of oxytocin is a drop in SVR, but we can easily combat that with vasopressors. So I use oxytocin and either norepinephrine or phenylephrine if the SVR might begin to decrease with that. In this patient, I would make sure that I keep her SVR much higher than normal, and I bet you her preeclampsia kept her blood pressure in a nice place such that her pulmonary resistance stayed lower than her systemic vascular resistance. Those are my thoughts about what we can expect with a C-section. And then that volume load is going to continue to happen as she mobilizes all that pregnancy fluid. And for the next 24 to 48 hours, we're going to need to keep that contractility up and that cardiac output supported so she can handle that fluid for the
3: next few hours. Wow, those are some great pearls. And for our patient, during her C-section, she was started on inhaled ipoprostanol and supported on high-flow nasal cannula. She had an epidural for anesthesia and an arterial line for blood pressure monitoring, and she tolerated the procedure well. But it's not over yet. As Dr. Silversides taught us in her episode, the postpartum period is among the highest risk periods for these patients. So Dr. Forfia, after her surgery, where should our patient be transferred and what are the important things that you're monitoring for in this period?
4: So, you know, obviously the first and foremost thing we're looking for is any signs of congestive heart failure. We're watching her jugular venous pressure very carefully. Her jugular venous pressure going into the C-section and immediately after the C-section were actually low. And what we're going to do and what we do do is we leave the patient on the obstetric floor for a few hours so that the major obstetrical indications can be observed immediately after delivery. And what I'm specifically referring to, of course, is bleeding. Once we realize that there is not significant bleeding and there's not any hard ongoing obstetrical indication, we typically will move the patient over to our step-down pulmonary hypertension floor where we are primarily rounding on the patient and watching them. We don't always do an address change, as we call it, but if the patient is a higher risk, we will move them once there is a clear lack of obstetrical indications of the floor. Another thing that we do is that we actually have one of our cardiac nurses who is very experienced in pulmonary hypertension from the pulmonary hypertension unit actually sees the patient in addition to the obstetric nurse while they're on the obstetric floor so that there's any questions related to the delivery of medications or anything along those lines. There's actually one of our cardiac pulmonary hypertension nurses who's there also. But I'll tell you, Caitlin, the the primary thing we're watching for is heart failure. And of course, we're going to watch for any development of atrial arrhythmias. The the loss of sinus rhythm is the enemy of any patient with significant pulmonary hypertension and right erect dysfunction. And so it's one of the reasons why we will only use an inotrope, absolutely have to, because inotropes are a great stimulator of atrial arrhythmias in patients with pulmonary hypertension and right erect dysfunction. So what we use is the pulmonary vasodilators to increase that capacitance, as was alluded to before, to decrease that afterload, to widen that reserve, which case typically inotropes are not necessary. And then we don't have to risk the provocateur of an atrial arrhythmia and the decompensation that could follow. So it's really about her jug of the venous pressure and you've got to watch her neck veins, watch her rhythm. And then we're also watching her response to diuresis. As soon as we see that they're not bleeding, Once we see the jugular venous pressure is anything above low, if it's normal or elevated, we're going to give them a certain amount of modest diuretic and watch the response. Because our feeling is you can always give fluid back, but what you don't want to do is fall into a state of a decompensated right heart, rising CBP, hepatic congestion, renal congestion, and that spiral. So we are trying to stay one step ahead of the patient. And yes, we do err on the side of being volume down. We want the neck veins low.
3: I remember rounding on her when I was on the pulmonary hypertension service as a fellow and just constantly looking at her JVP vigilantly to make sure it wasn't rising along with you, Dr. Forfia. And, you know, although she ended up doing well, Dr. Hamid, if things had not gone as well during her delivery and she suffered a cardiac arrest either during her pregnancy or at the time of delivery, What are some of the specific considerations with regards to ACLS and the pregnant woman? I know this is an area that you've been very involved in, and we would love to hear your thoughts.
5: Absolutely. I think like any situation, any life-threatening situation, mother always comes first. So the primary focus is on the mother, and you start doing your initial evaluation and ACLS as indicated. But in a pregnant woman, anytime there's a a uterus that is at the belly button or above you got to think that there are two lives. You start with the mother, but at the same time, in parallel, you activate the neonatal team or the delivery or the OB team if you are in the ED. So the three things that I'm going to say is once you have a maternal cord, as soon as the maternal cord is on its way and ECLS is started, you also think of delivering the baby. It has two purposes. One, the primary reason is that the resuscitative hysterotomy Taking that pressure and volume out of the uterus and contracting the uterus that Dr. Meng had mentioned earlier is going to improve maternal hemodynamics. Her chances of survival is going to be better if the uterus is empty than if the baby is still there. And secondarily, of course, for the baby. And you want to accomplish delivery of the resuscitating hysterotomy within the first five minutes, which practically would mean that as soon as there's a maternal code, you also Call in a fetal code or an OB code where you get the obstetrician at the bedside so they are ready to deliver if the mother does not have ROSC. The other important thing is the uterine displacement. Uterus is sitting directly on the IVC, and no matter how good the CPR is, how good the compressions are, the cardiac output that you're generating is at best 20 to 30 percent of normal. And you have this uterocytic, so you need to displace the uterus. That is really important, whether it's single-handed or double-handed. And AHA has a beautiful illustration how to do that. And then number three, which I have seen in various cases, where, you know, when we are thinking about getting the baby out, uh, quote-unquote, either resuscitative hysterotomy, or we used to call it perimortem cesarean section, there's a trend. That you tend to move the patient to the OR. Please do not do that because it will just add time with no benefit. So the patient needs to be delivered right there, right where the resuscitation is going on with the team at that site. So the three things, I I think those are really important to keep in mind when it comes to a maternal code.
3: Thanks, Dr. Hamid. And I think that ties back nicely into what Dr. Meng was mentioning in terms of the arena and the best place to take care of the patient. But all in all, thankfully, our patient recovered well. She was switched back to her home and inhaled triprostanil in addition to her sildenafil. And she was ultimately discharged home with a healthy, small-for-gestational-age infant. And she's still doing well today. So our discussion today really highlights just how fascinating cardio-obstetrics can be and how cardiology interfaces with so many other clinical subspecialties in this arena, highlighted by all of you here today. And all of these complicated hemodynamics and nuanced decision-making are what might make my heart flutter about cardioobstetrics.
1: Kaylin, I think your case perfectly highlighted the importance of a multidisciplinary, team-based approach in the management of complex cardiac patients. In this episode, we have featured three experts spanning three states and multiple subspecialties, including cardiology, pulmonary hypertension, maternal-fetal medicine, OB, and anesthesia, and also four fellows spanning four different states, which is truly remarkable. Dr. Hamid, Dr. Porphy, and Dr. Meng, thank you all so much for participating in this wonderful pearl
5: pack discussion. Thank you so much, and congratulations on leading this case presentation.
4: Guys, thank you very much for allowing us the opportunity to present this case and interact with so many experts and hopefully educate the listeners on the management of this type of process.
7: Thank you so much for having me. You guys are all so wonderful, and you're doing a great service to all of these women who now have a bunch of fellows and budding cardiologists and obstetricians taking care of them. So excited that everybody's interested in cardio obstetrics.
2: What an amazing discussion. My heart is definitely fluttering right now. Thanks, everyone.
8: Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah. And brought to you in collaboration with WomenHeart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to cardio nerds. With our partner, WomenHeart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. WomenHeart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. WomenHeart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As Medical Director of women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, each year I have the privilege of working with WomenHeart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, WomenHeart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. WomenHeart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or SCAD, Health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardio obstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own Cardio OB as a concept and important sub subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, It may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilize what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking... I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, The role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to Cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series, raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-ob problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-ob heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you. Either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardia OB series.